Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. If I were to come to you and tell you that someone you don't even know just paid a $25,000 speeding ticket on your behalf, you might not think it was good news for you. You say, why? Well, you might even think it was foolishness, even offensive. You might say, I don't even have a $25,000 speeding ticket. So why would you think I've broken the law when I haven't? However, If I were to tell you that on the way to work last Friday morning, the law clocked you at 55 miles an hour through a school zone where there were clear warning signs all over the place stating that 15 miles an hour was the limit, but you went straight through at 55, then what? Because what you did was extremely dangerous, and the law about to take its course is going to bring justice on you, and then... Someone you don't even know steps in and pays your fine for you. Would you then think that was awesome good news? Wouldn't you? Right? Can you see how telling you what you've done wrong first actually makes good news good? Doesn't that make sense? And that's what gospel means, good news. And I mention that because... Too much gospel preaching and evangelism today is almost exclusively centered on the good news part of the good news. You know, the idea, we're all good people, we're trying to be good people, God is good, everyone on the planet is good. Uh, At the end of the day, he'll figure out that we're mostly pretty good and he'll just take us up into heaven, no muss, no fuss. Unfortunately, Evangelism has gone wrong for so long because we failed to present the bad news that comes with the good. And gospel news must consider, take into account the bad before the good for it to be good. So we're talking about who God is, what man is, who mankind is, what sin is. As we began this new series this month, take five to give five. Take as little as five minutes to say or give five different things, theological points that you want to have in mind to share with people that are interested in the things of God, interested in the gospel perhaps. And the very first place to start that we said was God, the truth that there really is no such thing as atheism. According to the Bible, really, everyone who has ever born or will be born knows God at least at a basic level, just looking up, looking around, looking inside, which is what really is refers to creation and conscience. God exists. He's real. Therefore, he deserves our honor and our gratitude. And that's what the apostle wrote about in Romans 1, as we saw last time. But where does that now leave us? Where does that leave mankind? Right? Because God is perfectly just and holy and righteous, and we're not. 
there's a problem. Most people will tell you today, that's okay. You don't have to be in order to be right with God. Uh, he knows we're imperfect. He grades on the curve. Uh, he's a nice God. He'll cut you slack, right? He would never judge anyone who's basically generally good, especially if you're trying to be good. And I'm here to tell you today, if that's the way you feel about mankind, if that's how you felt about this before or today, the Word of God is going to give you a rude awakening as it needs to for all of us. For us to believe in and give a legitimate biblical gospel presentation, folks, we need to have to give the bad news before we give the good news, meaning we're going to talk about what the reformers called back in the day total depravity. That means we're radically depraved, not partially. And Paul sets this up if you look at verse 9 where he says, talking about the difference whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're in this problem. He says, for we have already charged that all, all people, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Greeks in that era was just a way of referring to Gentiles. Greeks were the predominant culture at the time. A Gentile, as we said, is anyone who's not Jewish. So if you put a Jew and a Gentile in a bucket, it's everybody. So that's what we're looking at. We're all under sin. We are universally guilty, right? All of us are immoral to one degree or another. Whether you're religious or not, Paul said so, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And that's what makes this, honestly, as difficult as a message as I can preach or as difficult a message for you to share and preach when you're dealing with your lost friends, loved ones, family. Because this truth is essential to the gospel. You say, why? Because a lost person, listen, who's unsaved, needs to know what they're being saved from. Does that make sense? Because after all, salvation biblically means to be rescued. Rescued from something. Rescued from what? Well, that's the need part. We're talking about God, man, need, gospel, and faith. We'll look at need next time. But it's enough to say that we have to establish the nature of mankind, who we really are before God, our fallenness and sin, in order for the cross of Christ to make sense, what he did. So we're going to break this down by just talking about our character, our conduct, and then our conviction. So think about, think about mankind going to court here today, right? We're, we're under indictment. We're under a charge here that we are not worthy of God's grace. Think about, think about the unredeemed coming before the judge, trying to make a defense on his own and saying, hey, I'm pretty good. We are worthy. God should love us all, right? John 3. So we all should be in heaven with him. How does God's word respond to that? Well, he's going to respond here by putting humanity on trial in the text. Look at it, if you would, our character here from Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 that begins, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. The passage is very plain the way it begins. 
No one, absolutely no one, here's what it means, can meet God's standard of righteousness. That's what counts the most. The rest of this text is just going to break that down in more detail. But it all adds up to that. Or to quote another apostle like John, in his first letter, first chapter, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. All right? So it's like, who are we kidding? So self-righteous Jews don't miss the point, by the way. Paul either directly quotes or paraphrases the Old Testament here to make this case. You see, it's in quotes in your Bible. He starts with Psalm 14, and then he moves over to Isaiah 53, 6, which says, all, all, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's a universal statement. That's an indictment. Psalm 14 puts it this way. The fool, remember we mentioned this last time when we talked about God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. By the way, the books of Psalms and Isaiah are the two most frequently quoted books in the New Testament by the New Testament writers for good reason. Now, you hear verse 12 in Romans, and you might want to ask yourself, come on, pastor, this is a little extreme. What about someone like Mother Teresa? Wasn't she good? Well, no one. You're saying no one believer has done anything good? Come on. Well, again, think about who and what is the standard, right? Relatively speaking to one another, Yes, we've all done good. But how have we done relative to or compared to God himself? That's the idea. Again, he's the standard. You cannot, God cannot look upon sin or have a relationship with sinners as we are in our unredeemed state. Jesus, I want to show this to you from the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus made this statement to the rich young ruler from the pure human perspective when the rich young ruler asked about how he could gain eternal life, be saved. And uh, he said to Jesus, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's the point. It's not that Jesus wasn't good. Jesus is representing here like the second Adam speaking on behalf of mankind in that statement. Excluding himself, he's saying mankind is not good. And, I, and we mention this because moral relativism rules today. We make ourselves feel better by comparing our character and our conduct to everyone else or the worst among us, right? I mean, that's easy. Because everyone, to some kind of degree or another, has some kind of moral standard. We've all got a moral compass. So I want to explain for a second what this doctrine of total depravity or total inability, I think is a better way of putting it. We're totally unable 
to earn salvation in and of itself. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be to say you're totally depraved. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as everyone else. And it doesn't mean that you can't display a degree of moral decency towards other people. The unredeemed do that. The redeemed do that. What it does mean is you're totally incapable, totally unable to please God. We cannot earn his saving grace or favor by anything that we do. So we need to think about how God sees us. So as we're looking at character, look how it's manifested through the head. Starts with the head. Go back to the text there, verse 11. For God, uh, no one understands. He goes back to that quote. No one understands, no, nor no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless or useless. No one does good, not even one. So he says, basically, we're head sick. None of us who are unredeemed understand, truly understand God. Or redemption. That Greek word understand there, the root of it is the word foolish. We're all foolish when it comes to this. The unsaved, in other words, lack wisdom. And you say, but what about the seeker-sensitive movement? There are people seeking after God. Aren't there unbelievers like that? And, and uh, then God will respond to them. No. Some desire to meet God, but it's often for selfish reasons. What can he do for me? Make my life better. In other words, I want the cosmic genie. I want God, the lamp, three wishes. That's the kind of deal I want. The unsaved don't really want to love or glorify God and obey Him according to the Scripture. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, what about the texts like Deuteronomy 4, Isaiah, Jeremiah? They all say, if you seek God, you'll find Him. That's true if the Lord has first chosen to change their heart, reveal Himself to them, cause them to be born again, you see. Their will has to be changed so that they are free then to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. So God is the only one who's really seeker-sensitive, if you think about it. Remember Luke, in his gospel, he wrote that it was Jesus, Jesus, who came to seek and save that which was lost. That's true, right? It's true. Only God is truly seeker-sensitive. Lost people initially don't want Christ. They're God-haters by birth, consciously or otherwise. And David, King David knew that because he said in Psalm 51, verse 5, very familiar text, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, it's another word for sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David simply saying, I was born a sinner. Listen, we're not sinners because we sin, okay? We sin because we're sinners by nature. That's who we are. And the Lord echoed that really well. John 6, Paul again, Romans 8. I want to give you Ephesians 2, Paul's letter there. The first three verses or so really put this really well. It's a slam dunk. Ephesians 2, 1. 
Paul writing to a church, the Ephesian church. They were lost, now they're Christians. And he says, and you were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, meaning as a way of life, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and here it is, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 5. Here's the great part that makes it good news. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, it was God who made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I said this last time, many other times before. God has to initiate salvation. In our natural state, the simple reason why is because we're spiritually dead, deaf, dumb, and blind. Like you just heard, not my words, Bible talk. He has to give us faith to believe by his divine, sovereign mercy and grace. You see, naturally, man does not and cannot seek God. He can only do so supernaturally. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So then as he calls you and he gives you faith as a grace gift, it says you'll draw near to him, believing he exists, and he will reward those who seek him. So you see what comes first. That's how God does it. He draws us to him first. And so what we have to do in taking five to give five is tell people who they really are without God so that their conscience is going to lead them to Christ. That's what we are to do as followers who are trying to lead, tell others how to follow Jesus. He sends us, we preach, and then they hear. So we talk about God and we talk about man. And speaking of man, having them, having shown their character, what's in their head, then we move to our conduct in verses 13 to 18. Look at this, look at the heart, from the head to the heart now. I want you to see this. We're back in Romans 3, verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses. Or let me start with verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that means poison, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You say, what does that have to do with the heart? Our hearts reveal what comes out of our mouth. They're attached Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. Okay? We've got guilty tongues before God. The tongue signifies speech. And the idea is our speech stinks is the original language. He uses this phrase, an open grave. People knew what that was about in the first century the worst thing you could come across would be an open grave, a stench that would come out of an empty tomb. Or not an empty tomb, an open tomb. So most of the unredeemed, now most of the unredeemed know this deep down. Okay? They know God's law tells them that we are not to take his name in vain. Right? 
to say nothing of the fact that we're natural-born liars. It says there are tongues that deceive. And you know, this makes me think, I am amazed today by the perversity of speech. I really am. The vulgarity that is commonplace in our culture. It's, it, it's mainstream. It's amazing how people talk to and curse one another. It's on television. It's, on, it's in film. It's all over the place. And if I find... If I find today's common language offensive, how much more does God find it offensive? Imagine how he must feel. Indeed, Proverbs 10 says, the mouth of the wicked is perverse. So, of course, the conduct that leaves us all guilty now, you've seen it in the head, now it's going to move to the hands. We're moving through here. Steady course, verse 15, where we're at in Romans 3. Their feet... Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. That means destruction. And the way of peace they have not known. You see, the New Living Translation puts that phrase just simply, they rush to commit murder. Folks, this is our hearts deep down. This is who human beings are. In fact, it's interesting today in our Bible reading plan, it could not have been more timely. It was Isaiah 59, which is quoted in this text. And it says in Isaiah 59, verse 2, that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He literally hears what you're saying, but he does not hear relationally what the unredeemed the unsaved have to say because their sins so separate them from God. It's heavy-duty stuff. You know, in Proverbs 6, there is a, there's a list there of seven things it says the Lord hates that are an abomination to him. That's a big word, abomination. That is a metaphor for saying what makes you sick to your stomach. There's seven things that make God's stomach sick, including a false witness who breathes out lies, and here it is, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to or hurry to evil. Does that sound familiar today? How about Hamas and the unspeakable atrocities committed by them on the attack of Israel? especially women and children. Folks, we're talking about a modern-day Holocaust. There's, there's no doubt of that. And I cannot imagine how hot the heat of hell is going to be for those terrorists that remain unrepentant. Someone you're witnessing to now, you hear this, might be tempted to say, well, I'm no terrorist. I've not committed murder. I haven't assaulted anyone. So God must be good with me. I'm, I'm good like that, right? Not so fast. All of us, including the lost among us, we struggle to make peace, to find peace. We're not the best of peacemakers, are we? Because again, the indictment is on all of mankind. Jesus anticipated this kind of prideful attitude, the religious attitude from the moral relativists of the day, like the scribes, the Pharisees. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this in Matthew 5, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, raka, an angry word in Aramaic, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. Because remember, for God, everything starts in the heart. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. All of us, at one time or another, have been murderers at heart, if we take Jesus' words seriously. As Vody Bauckham would say, if you can't say ouch, say amen. <laughs> you see, none of us, I have to say it, none of us can escape this charge of character and conduct against God. I mean, we're all doomed. And the news, I mean, just look at the news today. Our very lives prevent all the necessary evidence that we need for us to be convicted of the crimes of sin and rebellion against God. It started from Cain murdering his brother Abel to today. Humanity is guilty as charged here by our character and our conduct. Our heads, our hearts, our hands are stained with blood, with hatred, and with anger. So wait a minute. I can prove I'm not a hateful or a violent person. I'm a good person. I never wished ill on anyone. All right. Let's argue for the sake of argument here. You may be as nice and sweet as they come. God has to know that. Well, then look at verse 18. Paul takes care of that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, the best of us are guilty of that sin or crime against God. Remember from last time, we argued that the atheist ignores God despite the overwhelming evidence, external and internal, because he hates the Lord. He doesn't want to acknowledge God, give him honor, or give him thanks. That's Romans 1. This verse, though, that you just heard sums up that attitude as a summary of all the charges in the indictment. Psalm 36.1 talks about the deep wickedness in our heart, that there is no fear of God before his eyes. What does it mean, fear? Do you have to cower in his presence? Be fearful he's going to strike you with a thunderbolt? Not necessarily. What it is is a deep, deep reverence of God, a respect of his majesty, his perfections, his holiness, his righteousness. Like Isaiah said, in Isaiah 6, he comes before the presence of the Lord in that incredible vision on the throne. This was a fairly relatively righteous man. And he said, woe is me. I'm undone. Because he could see himself in front of God and all his glory. And he recognized who he was. That's the fear of God. And if you don't fear God, you are capable of thinking and doing anything. But when you have that healthy fear of the Lord, you understand, as one translation from Isaiah 64 puts it, our righteous deeds before God are nothing but filthy rags. That's how good we are. You see, this is where it all begins and ends with the Lord, fear, in that sense. Proverbs 1 and 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then Solomon wrapped all of this up pretty well, as well as the book of Ecclesiastes, when he said this, the end of the matter, at the end of the day, at the end of life, ultimately, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
Solomon says, you, you want to know what you're here for? Fear God. Keep his commandments. Have a nice day. That's it. It's pretty concise. Pretty comprehensive. Or, if you ever doubt what the fear of the Lord looks like, here, throw this at somebody. Because this is about sharing your faith now, especially this Christmas season, this take five to give five. Ask somebody a question. Ask yourself, or whomever you're sharing the gospel with, do you truly love God? Take them to the great commandment that Jesus did. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Does anybody do that 24-7, 365? That's a rhetorical question. No. Therefore, you're guilty. We're all guilty. So just when you think you're all that in a bag of chips compared to somebody else, do you love God with everything you got? We're in trouble, folks. Finally, we come to the conviction. Last verse of the passage, Romans 3.19. We're done. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, meaning those that knew the law of God, Old Testament days, the Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. The whole world may be accountable to God. See, here you hear the verdict is in. The prosecuting attorney, think of this as God the Holy Spirit. He's grounded in the word. He's made his closing remarks to the judge. Who's the judge seated on the bench? It's God the Father. He's seated in a robe, white robe of righteousness. And all of humanity, the defendants, are all of us. Everybody's a defendant. Those without Christ and their loved ones, their future is sealed. The defendants are all seated. They're under trial. It's a really good analogy. Man, therefore, is under and afflicted with this terminal disease called sin. There is nothing. I'm here to tell you, and you must tell people this. There is absolutely nothing that we can do in our own strength or in our own smarts to do anything about it. Paul had said that if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Because remember we said they have the moral natural law in their heart. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. Because they have conscience. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Everyone is guilty. Paul said whether you have the law in your hands or in your heart, you and your works are going to be judged. Either way, you're going to be found guilty either way. There's no escape. We have no defense, no excuse. The conviction has been pronounced here. Sinners, enemies of God, cannot be right before God. We're all lawbreakers. According to God's law, which is how it's set up, Paul called the word of God a schoolmaster, a tutor, meaning it tells us, it teaches us that we're guilty. Billy Graham, the late great uh, evangelist of the 20th century, said, the Holy Spirit convicts us. He shows us the Ten Commandments. The law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. We look at the mirror of the Ten Commandments and we see ourselves in that mirror. So what we need is help in order to find any hope at all. Sinners like you and me, we need to go to the Court of Appeals. we got to find it. Where is that? Who do we go to? Where do we find hope? 
Amen, I heard that out there. That's what we need, and we're going to dive into that full bore next time. But what we need is a righteousness outside of ourselves. That's not your own. We don't have it. We can't get it. And we can't buy it. But we need it. And this is where we're getting close now to the good news, the greatest news in the history of the world. God has found a way for sinners to be right with him. And we'll talk about that, where we find hope. This world's in desperate need of hope. But first, folks, we have to give people the bad news. Good doctors always take the time. They take five to give five. If you're in an HMO, you know what I mean. Five minutes is all you get. And I don't think you're getting five things either. If you get one in five minutes, you've had a good appointment. I definitely can get an amen on that one. That's you and me. But now, what about the person? This is important before we're done. What about the person who knows who they really are before God? Because you and me, we break down presenting the gospel. Listen, we give law, the law to the proud and grace to the humble. Have you heard that before? With the law, the law of the Lord breaks the hard heart with the gospel. He heals the broken heart. Never will you find Jesus in Scripture, in the gospel, giving the gospel of grace to a proud, arrogant person without breaking them down first with the law. Because God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Jesus did not condemn the adulterous woman, remember, who the scribes and the Pharisees claimed to have been caught in sin. He didn't do that, did he? There was compassion there because she was already broken over her sin. And then the Lord demonstrated that again in the picture, portraying himself, God the Father, as the Father welcoming back a repentant prodigal son. Remember? Ran out to hug him. Kill the fatted calf. Let's party. He's been found. The lost has been found. So as I close, I'll tell you a little story about a man. He was a prime suspect in a brutal murder. All the evidence, though, against him was circumstantial. He was never arrested. He was never tried for the crime. One night, he's, he's driving on an interstate highway. Apparently, he felt sleepy, pulled off the road for a short nap. And as he slept, a truck, an 18-wheeler loaded with logs, came along. And just as the truck passed the man's car, the chain that holds the logs broke. The logs fell on his car and crushed him to death immediately. Was that an accident? Or was it the providence of divine justice doing what man's system of justice cannot do? I don't know. That's food for thought. One thing is certain out of that. A person can escape man's system of justice, but he or she will never escape God's justice. Paul said it later in Romans, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, you don't want justice. What you want is mercy. You want to cry out for mercy. So we better get to people while we can and take five, at least, to give five. Amen? 
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 